51 to 62 is our text for today. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Sumerian village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Thanks, Ashley. Ashley and I have both been, uh, I think the, prop, the proper biblical word is beset with, with colds this week. And so uh, not only do we have usually a child in between us, but we're also coughing most of the time. And so you have to take, uh, maybe forgive us is the right word for our for our, our graveliness. I hope it adds to uh, my message what they call gravitas. We talk about this with politicians, that they have to have a certain level of gravitas, and I'm hoping that's what it does for me today. Anyways, uh, so I just wanted to uh, back up real quick and uh, make mention of a few things that Ashley already said, because I have this uh, habit in my life of just repeating what she says. It works out really well for me. But uh, last week was Mission Sunday. Last week was a, was a Sunday that we took some time out to look at the missionaries that we support and uh, our mission partners around the world. Uh, and we uh, took up uh, missions commitment cards. If you, if you took one of those with you and you were thinking about uh, what that looked like, you can just, uh, we said that you could throw it in the, in the offering today. But if you would prefer to just hand that to me at the end of service, if you were thinking about that, feel free to do that. Uh, so that's number one. And if you weren't here and you were thinking, oh, I would like to, to learn a little bit more about our missions program or I'd like to support some of our missions work, uh, you can feel free to come talk to me after church and we can get that squared away. So that's one. And number two, uh, we had this really wonderful and meaningful night this Wednesday at our Ash Wednesday service. And I just kind of want to celebrate it with you all. Uh, Ash Wednesday is this strange thing for people in the evangelical tradition to do, right? It, it, it feels a little odd for people who aren't Lutherans or Catholics to participate in an Ash Wednesday service. But uh, we did it this Sunday, and uh, this past Wednesday, and it was really, really powerful for me. I always have this innate sense whenever we enter into anything that's uh, maybe a little bit more uh, a product of the historic church or churches that have existed for a long time that we're entering into some type of rhythm, some type of thing that, is, uh, that has some depth. There's some heft to it, and there's always beautiful things to mine up. And so last Wednesday, we looked at just the idea of repentance, just the idea of repentance and how cent what a central role it plays in the life of any church and in the life of any Christian. And so as we meditated on that idea of repentance, I thought it was a really beautiful time. We had a time of extended worship and in prayer, we had an opportunity to receive communion and to receive ashes, and it was really, I, say, I said this, I think, last week when, I was, when we were talking about it, it, that service is always one of my favorite that we do every year, and it, and it held true for this year. So uh, if you didn't get an opportunity to go this year, 
There's only one of you, there's only one a year. <laughs> so so you'll have to wait till next year, unfortunately for you. That's that's as, that's as guilt trippy as I get. All right. So today we are starting a new series, and the, we're calling this series The Road, The Road. And the reason we're calling it that is because beginning in uh, chapter 9, verse 51 of the Gospel of Luke, it says this, beginning in verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And for the next 10 chapters in the book of Luke, the, uh, every story you read will make mention of Jesus was on his way, or Jesus was on the road, or Jesus was headed towards Jerusalem. The, the writer of Luke is trying to communicate something to, or Luke the writer, uh, is trying to communicate something to us here. That after uh, Peter's confession of who Jesus is that happens uh, earlier in chapter 9 of, of the book of Luke, Jesus is now shifted in his mission. His mission is now to head towards Jerusalem, and we all, well, everyone who's reading that book is supposed to know what happens in Jerusalem. Jesus is headed to his death. And it seems that Luke is saying in, in these series of passages that we'll look at for the, for the coming weeks leading up to Easter, that Jesus is acutely aware of what his mission is, and he has set his face towards Jerusalem. He has set his face towards his ultimate mission. There's a kind of shift in the narrative of Luke. And it's important for us to be aware of those types of shifts, just a Bible reading tip, I guess, if you see a word or a set of words that are repeated often over and over and over in the text, it's really important to pay attention because the author is attempting to communicate something to his audience that he wants them to pay attention to. And Luke is adamant about making mention of Jesus being on the road or on the way or towards Jerusalem for these 10 chapters. And so over the coming weeks, over the next six Sundays, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, stories of Jesus on the way or on the road. Yeah, see what we did there with the name of the sermon series? I'm not trying to channel Cormac McCarthy or uh, any, any author like that, but, or maybe I am. If you've, if you've read The Road or seen the movie, it's, that's, not what we're trying to, that's not what we're trying to get at. Anyways, um, for you literary buffs out there. The, um, but there's one interesting thing about this, this idea of the road or the way that Luke brings up. The, the Greek word here is hados. Can you say hados? Correct. That was really good, guys. Uh, this word is, functions very similarly to our English word road or way. In that it can, be, it can mean a roadway, right? Just a place where people, uh, a road where people travel. But it can also pull kind of double duty, it can also mean a way of life, right? A path of life. And so I, I think when Luke is saying uh, Jesus is found along the way or that uh, he was teaching on the way, or, and specifically today when we look at the idea of discipleship on the way or on the road, that Luke knows in his head that he's communicating something significant, not just about what Jesus is doing, but also about the way in which disciples of Jesus ought to be on the way, right, on the road, on the path with Jesus in some significant way. 
This is just luckily has a lot to do with our mission statement, pursuing the way of Jesus, right? It's a deeply biblical mission statement, trust me. Uh, and, so, uh, and so today we were going to look specifically at this idea of discipleship, of being on the way with Jesus, of being on the road with Jesus as he sets his face, as he sets his journey towards the cross. But what he teaches along the way is significant for us. And so I want to look specifically at that today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to, uh, to Luke, to the passage that we read from earlier, uh, to Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. Now the 51 through uh, 56 passage, there's actually two separate passages there. I wanted to cover, I wanted us to read this whole section because I wanted us to read verses 51 because it's the very beginning of this narrative of Jesus being on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, but we're kind of going to disregard verses 51 through 56 today. This has to do with Jesus sending messengers out to, to Samaria and those messengers coming back and saying that Jesus was not um, accepted or he was not invited into Samaria. And then two of Jesus's more uh, rambunctious, maybe is a good word, followers say, hey, let's call down fire and smite them all. And Jesus goes, whoa, hold the brakes. <laughs> we're pump the brakes. We're not, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be smiting entire cities today. This isn't Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not how we're going to do things. Um, and then he just kind of moves on. So if you're interested in that passage, you can go back and read it in a little more depth. It's very interesting, and you could preach an entire sermon on it, but uh, today we're going to move specifically for, through verses um, 57 through 62. So, uh, so in verses 57 through 62, uh, we get the first of three images, first of three images that Jesus uses to describe what a disciple is and how a disciple should function, right? How a, how a, what a follower of Jesus is and how they should go about following him, all right? Jesus uses these three images. So beginning in verse 57, he says this, as, uh, it says this, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Right? So somebody offers up, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replies, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is a very strange way of responding, right? And this is true about, there's something true about Jesus in this passage that I just want to pull out before we really dig into it. And that's that uh, oftentimes, very much in kind of popular American culture, we have this sense that Jesus is kind of, I don't know, that he's just a very positive figure, and he walks around saying very positive things, and he's just kind of, he's just a go-with-the-flow guy, and he doesn't really challenge anybody on much. He's just kind of like a 70s hippie-ish, kind of burnout, you know, doesn't really, doesn't really hold anybody. If you don't know what a burnout is, don't, don't look it up. Uh, doesn't hold anybody to any standards or anything like that, right? But then we get passages like this, where Jesus is, seems to be incredibly confrontational, right? He seems to be um, uh, kind of vague, even. Like, he's confrontational, but he speaks in these parables that are hard, kind of hard for us to understand, even. If you were to read this section of Scripture with no help, just kind of pull it out, what is Jesus talking about here? What is Jesus talking about here? Me, 
when I came home this week and I knew we were going to speak on this passage, and Ashley said, how is, how is the message going for Sunday? I said, great, it's going good. I have no idea what Jesus was trying to say, but it's going great, I guess, right? We all run into these passages where Jesus seems to be both very challenging to us at times, but also kind of hard to understand, right? Has any of you read anything in the Bible that was hard for you to understand? Yeah, yeah, Carol, yeah. <laughs> you know the number one person I don't trust in all the world? Uh, people who don't like food, right? That's one. Uh, two, uh, two, I don't trust people who think they know what every passage in the Bible means. <laughs> you know, when you open up to a really difficult passage that it's hard to make sense of, and they're like, oh, yeah, that means da 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 And I'm going, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I've spent 10 years of my life in school to try to figure this out, and I got no clue. And this person's really sure. Uh, those people scare me a little bit, right? Particularly because the, the, the biblical text, the Bible, is meant to be wrestled over. It's intended to be that way. Rabbis in the Old Testament would sit around, and they would just kind of argue about what texts meant, right? What different passages of Scripture meant. There is this wrestling that has to take place with the Scriptures. It, it is not, on the face of it, always clear, right? I don't think I'm saying anything that's highly controversial. And we need to do, occasionally, to do the hard work of figuring out what is a little bit under the surface. Now, the Bible is accessible. We should all read it when... And uh, in reading it, we do learn things. It's not to say that it's the secret kind of book that, you know, you need a cipher and a bunch of secret code rings to try to figure out, right? But it is not always on the surface the easiest thing, right? And that's part of why we in community as a group of people have to read it together, right? Does this make sense? Because we need to hear what other, oh, I thought it meant this, and I thought it meant this, and I think this, I read this, and this had really good insight. So that's an important thing. It's an important process, and it's something we should be actively doing. So that's just a note about how to read the Bible. Anyways, let's get into the text. So Jesus says this thing about foxes and dens and birds and nests and the Son of Man not having anywhere to lay his head. So what does this mean? What does this little illusion that he uses here mean. And this, what Jesus says here to this disciple, was technically true about him. As a kind of an itinerant traveling rabbi, he did not have any place to lay his head. He didn't have a home. There's a story in the Gospels of Jesus actually going to his home, and his hometown, and them not receiving him there. And then he just kind of leaves. And so Jesus, at least for these years of his public ministry, is just kind of a, a roving uh, rabbi slash prophet who doesn't really have a place to live. We learn from other places in the gospel that Jesus, that Jesus had money, but the money he had was given to him by wealthy women, uh, women who, uh, of means who contributed to his ministry that allowed him to live. So that was good. Uh, so Jesus was living off of handouts, essentially. That was, what, that was how he supported himself during this time. And he had no place to live. He had no place to live. He had no home to call his own. And this was clearly a little distressing to Jesus. But he also communicated it to the disciple who wanted to follow him, right? That if you follow me, you're not, you're not going to have a home either, right? Because I don't have a home. 
So on the surface of it, it's a very practical warning to this person who, come, who wants to come and follow him, that this is a serious thing, and if, you le- and if you leave your home and follow me, you're not going to have a home any longer, right? It seems like a good thing to say. But I think there's also something a little deeper about what exactly Jesus is saying here, because he's both communicating to this particular disciple, to this particular person who wants to follow him, but he's also communicating to us, right? as disciples of Jesus, as people who are attempting to follow Jesus on the road or on the way in our own lives. So what's the deeper significance to what Jesus is saying here? What is he actually saying? I think the main point of what he is saying, uh, like we were talking about in the book of Ephesians when we went through that book uh, about a month ago, is that uh, the follower of Jesus, the person who has committed their lives to follow him, is in some sense a pilgrim. That they're in some real and true sense even an exile or a stranger. That they are in some real and true sense slightly different from the predominant culture that surrounds them. Because they have oriented their lives around something that the rest of culture isn't orienting their lives around. Does this make sense? So if you orient your life around Jesus that will, and you set your priorities to that, you will immediately look slightly different than people who don't set their order their lives and set their priorities around the person of Jesus. This makes sense, right? Because if you order your lives around uh, your retirement fund, right? If you order your lives around, I don't know, maybe you like Mustangs or, you know, whatever you order your life around, right? Whatever, it, whatever, that, I, I said, I said, I realized I said Mustang, but for you, that, that could be like a horse. I meant the car, Dale, not the horse. Anyways. He's a horse guy. Anyways, um, the sorry, I don't even know that. I don't know even know if those types of horses actually exist. I know very little about horses. You can tell me after church. Anyways, we've gone on a horse tangent. Ashley can't stand it. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, in some real and true sense, you're swimming upstream. In culture, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're, you're swimming upstream. There's something different about the way in which you live your life as opposed to the way that another person who doesn't orient their lives around the person of Jesus lives their lives. Does this make sense? And Jesus wants the disciple, uh, the person who wants to follow him, the, the prospective disciple, to be aware of this reality, right? That if you commit to following him, there will be something slightly different about your life. The, the way you orient your life, the way you live your life as opposed to the way that people around you live their lives, there will be something slightly different. Now, that this is not particularly about you uh, being confrontational with the people around you, but it is, the, it is the fact that you will have a different time. Does this make sense? And so Jesus wants us to be aware of this reality, that uh, foxes have places, uh, have dens. What? I can't even remember. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, right? People that... People have homes, and they feel at home in places. But if you're, if you're committed to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, that changes your orientation towards the world in some significant ways. And we need, as followers of Jesus, to be aware of that. Right? Right. All right, let's move on to the next image that Jesus uses here. In verse 59, he says this. Um, and this time, he's, the, in the first instance, this man asked to follow Jesus. Not man, it could have been a person. It could have been a woman also. Uh, but in this one, this is a man who comes up, who Jesus walks up to this time, and, and Jesus says, follow me, just like he did to his, to his, uh, his first 
disciples, he walked up to this man and says, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Take it easy, Jesus. My goodness, this is a harsh thing to say. Let the dead bury their own? You, oh, don't worry about your dad. Let, let the dead bury him. You come with me. This is an interesting encounter because burying your father in the first century was a duty, was a duty that no one contested. No one thought that this shouldn't be done. Of course you should bury your father and take care of your family and deal with all of these things. This is something important that everyone should do. It made no sense not to, right? But Jesus is, I would argue, not making a statement here about literally burying a family member, right? Jesus is not literally saying anybody who follows me shouldn't be worried about burying their family members, right? This isn't what Jesus is saying. And actually, we learn in 1 Timothy 5, 8, that early Christians took the care of their family, their nuclear family, very seriously. So this, is not, this did not come into the practice of early Christianity. So because it didn't come into early Christian practice, we know that Jesus is using this analogy to try to communicate something significant, right? He's, using, he's saying something very provocative to try to communicate something significant here. So Jesus is not advocating for ditching your family in their time of need. He's not advocating for, um, for not burying a family member. What, what he is doing is he's trying to throw um, the importance of his mission into relief. He's trying to show us and this disciple the importance of his mission over and against other important worldly things. So over against other important responsibilities, Jesus is trying to communicate to this disciple and to other disciples that his mission, his cause, is more important than even the important things. Does this make sense? He's not saying don't take care of your parents, right? He's not saying don't uh, attend to your family. But what he is saying is that the priority of the kingdom of God holds a high priority in the life of a disciple, right? That the, that the priority of the kingdom of God holds this incredibly important place. And there's also in Jesus this kind of sense of urgency that's taking place here, right? Because Jesus himself is headed where? To Jerusalem. Good work, guys. He's headed towards the cross, and so there's this sense of urgency in his life, right? Jesus is saying, like, I have a, I have a mission to accomplish. I have a thing to do, and we don't have time for other things, right? Even important things, we don't have time for them because I am on an important path. Does this make sense? Jesus is attempting to communicate to the best of his ability that the disciple of Jesus is one who prioritizes the kingdom of God the mission of Jesus over other important type things, right? That the, the, in the hierarchy of importance, that the, the mission of the kingdom of God serves the highest, is, stands on the highest shelf or is on the highest rung. And he wants to communicate this clearly to a disciple of Jesus, that if you are weighing other things over and against the kingdom, right, and those things are higher or a or more significant priority in your life that you have in some sense not 
just not seen that the kingdom is important. But I would argue that you haven't seen the value, right? You haven't been captured by the significance of this mission and message. That if you're, we- if you're weighing other things in your life is more important than the mission of God, if you're weighing other things in your life more important than following the way of Jesus, then this isn't a criticism of you. It's just that you need to pray that God would open your eyes to see the beauty and the significance of what it means to be on the path and on the way with Jesus, that there's this depth of significance that happens when we, when we set our lives to walk with Jesus, that other things begin to kind of pale in comparison to that, that as we set a course, as we set our face to walk with Jesus, that it becomes this beautiful journey that we're on. And everything else, most everything else, it doesn't just fall away because the way in which we live our lives, the way in which we love the people around us become an expression of our walk with Jesus, right? And usually we get better at those things as we walk with Jesus. But if, we, but if we're prioritizing other things over and above, what we often see is that we just haven't seen the beauty of the kingdom for what it actually is. We haven't seen the beauty of embracing this type of love for what it actually is. Right? And so Jesus is communicating to his disciples and to us that it is, a, it is about this process of bringing life into the world, of proclaiming the kingdom of God that should capture our imaginations and hearts and should be our top priority. It should be the thing that, that is most, both most exciting to us because this isn't about coercion, right? It's not just about, um, this isn't like proclaiming the kingdom of God shouldn't be like taking your vitamins or you're eating your vegetables, right? It shouldn't be something that I just, oh, I know this is the most important thing for me, so now I got to go do it. It should capture your heart, right? And because of that, it should be the thing that serves the highest priority in our lives. And if communicating the goodness of God and proclaiming the kingdom of God and with everything that that means doesn't capture your priority. Jesus says to you, right, you just need to be aware of this, right? You need to be aware of this before you set out on the journey of being my disciple, right? That it will, that it will occupy your highest priority. All right. So image number three that Jesus uses here Beginning in verse 61, he says this. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replies, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for, the service, uh, for service in the kingdom of God. So, uh, again, Jesus seems to be playing off this idea of the importance of family a little bit to make this statement punchy, to make it really hit home, to make it really surprising. And Jesus is a genius at saying things in ways that really catch people's attention, to say the least. He does this over and over again. But this particular image that he uses of farming, this agrarian image of having your hand on the plow, is very interesting and has a little bit more depth to it than the first two. Um, We don't really have time to go into everything. But Jesus is making an allusion here to, uh, if if you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's a story with Elijah and Elisha. 
Elijah was the head prophet, and Elisha was the secondary prophet. And Elisha is, has his hand to the plow, literally, and he asks if he can go see his family. Uh, and Elisha says, yes, you can, right? And so Jesus is comparing and contrasting his ministry to the, to the ministry of this prophet in 1 Kings chapter 19. You can go and read a little bit more of it uh, if you're interested in that. But Jesus, uh, he's, he's doing this particularly to, to outline what his ministry as opposed to the ministry of other uh, Jewish prophets that have come before. And what he's essentially communicating to his audience, and his audience would have been well aware of this story of Elisha and Elisha, Elijah and Elisha. See, that's not a good, those aren't good names to say back to back. They would have been aware of this, and when he said this, it would have, that's what would have come to their minds. But he, he puts this twist on it. And he says, essentially, my ministry is more important than Elisha's, right? He separates what he's doing from just the, the ministry of a prophet. He begins, to, he begins to distinguish what he's doing versus what really, in the, in the Jewish mind at the time, Elisha was one of the, Elijah, sorry. Uh, wow, see, dyslexia, guys. It'll get you. Um, was really one of the top four or five prophets in the whole uh, Hebrew scriptures. So he was, played a very central role in their minds. And so when he sets himself apart from this prophet in this way, it's a startling thing. It's a striking thing, actually, to his audience to hear him say this, to hear him put it this way. And yet there's this other, uh, and yet this image also needs to be kind of held in tension with other images as well that we read in this passage. So the plow itself, the plowshare, the thing to which that disciple has his hand on, has, takes on some really interesting and significant imagery in the Bible. Uh, if you read Isaiah chapter 2, verses 4, this image of the plowshare is also very interesting. That, um, that in, in Jesus' way of saying, he's saying that this, this image of the plowshare is the image of a servant or a worker, right? And so the one who works, right, the one who is serving in the kingdom of God, who's about this business, doesn't necessarily have time to look back or to look away from their work. That in some real and true sense, that the work that Jesus was entering into was more important than what any prophet before him was doing, right? And he wants to make it clear to any disciple, any servant, any person who has their hand on the plow that this is more important than whatever is behind you, right? Again, he's, he's reiterating this. But the interesting thing about this plow and the interesting thing about the imagery that it came to take on is it came to represent peace. It came to represent the idea of sowing peace, Right? Over and over again in the, in the New Testament, the, um, the, the communication of the good news of the kingdom or is, is uh, seen through the lens of this, another agrarian image of sowing seed, right? You might be familiar with this if you've read the New Testament. But this sowing of seed is this image that comes, over, comes, on, uh, comes up multiple times. And Jesus uses it multiple times to communicate what it is that... that uh, that should be happening in the communication of the gospel. But when, he, but when he unifies this idea of the plowshare itself with the seed, the thing that the disciple ought to be sowing in the world, 
The, thing, the way in which the disciple goes about communicating the good news of the gospel is to sow peace. Is to sow peace. Fascinating how the depth of this image that Jesus uses here. That in some real and true sense, that the disciple who is communicating the good news of Jesus ought to be about the business of communicating the gospel of peace. The good news of peace. That God wants his people to be peacemakers in the world, right? Now, what's so fascinating about this and what is why Jesus is such a brilliant orator and why he's such a brilliant communicator of ideas is he weaves together this idea of being a, a sower or a communicator of the gospel of peace with these almost violent images of leaving family and leaving home and letting the dead bury the dead, right? There's an incongruity between these two images. They don't stick together quite well, do they? They feel strange. They feel a little lopsided, even. But I think Jesus does this to get our attention, right? That while these images are kind of almost violent in their denial of family and denial of love, right? The thing that, the, ultimately, the way in which Jesus wants us to go about sowing and communicating the good news of the kingdom is being instruments of his peace, right? Fascinating, the difference and the distinction that Jesus uses here. And I think that's a really great take-home for us today when we're looking specifically at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in the world. The disciple of Jesus, if we take all three of these images together, the disciple of Jesus is one whose life is taken up with the task of following him, right? of doing what he does. And like a farmer plows and sows seed in order to reap a harvest, the disciple of Jesus is called to sow seed of peace as a way of proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is saying in, in very kind of confusing terms, right? In ways that don't automatically seem evident to us on the surface. This is essentially what Jesus is communicating to us. That the, that the disciple of Jesus, like a farmer, this agrarian image, I think, is very telling. It's very poignant. That this work isn't, um, that it, it has a, we know this, right, in Iowa, it has a rhythm to it, and it has a season to it, and it has a, and it has a, uh, it has an earthbound quality to it, Right? And we all know that our real life is like this, that um, at times the, our lives can just kind of flit by as kind of mundane experiences. You know, we just go from enduring one thing to enduring the next thing to enduring the next thing. And we never really see the value and significance of our lives for what it is. And yet this, this agrarian image, this image of being a farmer, a farmer is one who is able to attend to the mundane, right? The seemingly uh, banal thing in, things in life, the routine of life as being very significant, as being abundantly significant. And it, it is in that intention to the seemingly insignificant things in life as being alive or on fire with a type of significance that over time the farmer is able to go from uh, the fields that we see now to a field that is abundant. Does this make sense? And so this agrarian image for Jesus, I think, has all kinds of facets to it that as we look 
out into our world, as we look at our very own lives and we see kind of the mundane, the little, the insignificant parts of the, and the things that we do every day and every week and every month, that Jesus is calling us, that Jesus is calling his disciples to be a people who see it as kind of on fire with significance and value and worth, and that it is in the midst of those mundane those seemingly little or insignificant moments, that if we are actively following Jesus, if we are actually about the business of sowing the seeds of the kingdom, right? If we are about that business in the midst of our mundane and insignificant lives, right? That over time, we will see a harvest. And the thing we are called to sow in the midst of those times is peace is peace. Now, this is really convicting for me, because very often in the, in the most kind of banal and mundane moments of my daily and weekly life, the last thing I want to sow is peace, right? Think of those moments that seem the most insignificant to you. Think of those moments that are like the most maddening, the last thing you want to sow into those moments is peace, right? If you have that checker who just like can't get it together, right? Just cannot get it together. The last thing you want to sow into that person's life is peace, right? You want to sow a swift kick. I almost tripped. That would have been a, that would have been a good example, right? The last thing we often want to sow is peace, but God calls us, Jesus calls us as followers of him to be aware of this reality that in, in the mundane, in the, in the natural, in the normal progression of our lives, the thing that we are called to sow, the, the thing that we are called to pay attention to is sowing the seeds of his kingdom and doing that with peace. It's beautiful, right? It's beautiful, and it comes from this passage that's kind of hard to understand <laughs> on a lot of levels. But that's good, I think. It's good for us to work a little when we read the scriptures. It's good for us to dig a little because that yields a kind of character in us, doesn't it? That's really good and beautiful. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you, God, that you reveal your heart to us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, uh, who came and resolutely set his face um, to go to Jerusalem, to head to the, to the cross, to pay for our sins, that we might have freedom. And yet also, God, we, we thank you so much for these little nuggets of wisdom that you give us about how to live our lives as followers of Jesus how to live our lives as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Father, I pray for all of us here today that as we go from this place and we enter the, that kind of mundane, banal, just kind of endless minute by minute, day by day drudgery that so often besets us in this life, that we would not see it as such but rather we would see those moments, those times in our lives for what they actually are, which is an opportunity to sow seeds of the kingdom, which is, an which is an opportunity to sow peace and love in places and in areas where 
peace, and love is not in abundance. Jesus, would you help us to do that? Would we capture your heart for, for people who seem insignificant in our day? Would, we be able, would you help us to communicate love and, and worth and significance to those people? And would you help us to communicate about your love for those people? We pray it all in your strong name. Amen and amen. So go today in the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.